Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we are speaking with Belinda Yaxley, Dr. Belinda Yaxley. She is tuning in from Under Down Under. Ooh, uh, she's right. calling in from Tasmania, uh, which is just about as far away as you can get from where we are. But through the miracle of technology, we were able to have a very awesome conversation with Belinda talking about aquaculture in Australia. She talked about kind of her journey a little bit, some of the stuff that she worked on, what she, how she got to where she is. And then we talked a lot about uh, animal welfare, particularly when it comes to salmon farming down in, uh, down in Australia. Yeah, it's kind of her specialty these days. So it was really interesting hearing the the things she had to say and the innovations that she's seen over the years of her career. And I know we have a lot of Australian listeners out there, so I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Yep. Shout out to our Aussie listeners. We love you guys. We appreciate your support and uh, stick with us. Keep uh, keep spreading the word and um, you know maybe you'll serve for number two soon, number two listener base. So <laughs> enjoy the episode, learn something, and uh, we'll talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. Uh, we're sitting down on our couches and Maddie's in outer space, but we are sitting uh, down with Belinda Yaxley. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. One of our GAA employees that resides in Australia. What part of Australia do you live in? I'm actually way down south. We call it under, down under. It's um, the island off the south of Australia called Tasmania, and it is an actual state of Australia. Yeah, I think we just found the title to this episode. Under, under, down, under. it's down, really, under. it's really too bad that people in Australia decided to go with the phrase "down under" instead of the underworld. But that's <laughs> what. It, you know. So, Belinda, you are a a wealth of knowledge, and that's one of the reasons we had you on the show. But before we kind of get into some of your expertise, could you walk us through your background story, what you did to get to where you are now? Okay, sure. Just in summary, I'll start quickly right way, way back because it does sort of set the scene, I guess, and give you a bit of understanding of why I am where I am today. But um, I spent a lot of time as a child in the ocean, in the mountains. I lived, I grew up in a beautiful part of Tasmania on the coast where we have a mountain range running through the back and we have all the beautiful coastlines. And so from a very early child, I was fascinated with um, flora and fauna, so with all the plants and the animals, and I'd be, you know, free diving and getting abalone off the rocks and spearing my own fish since, you know, since I can remember. So I've always had, a, I guess, a passion and a love for the ocean and what it can provide for us and also nature on land. And my parents were, were, were excellent at really supporting us with with that my brother and my sister all of us and um, so we were lucky to have mum and dad take us to a lot of beautiful national parks and camping along on the beaches and so forth when, when we were growing up as kids and that really fostered that love of the ocean and, and the mountains and so by the time I ended up at at um, university I, I really knew what I wanted to do and I was determined to be a biologist of course um, and I ended up doing a PhD in zoology and my formal qualification is a conservation ecologist. So I actually didn't get into water though for quite, quite some time. Um, initially I spent several years post-university working for forestry. So, oh, um, interesting. yeah, so I specialized in, um, beetles that lived in dead wood but I was the curator of a forest of the Tasmanian forest insect collection for many, many years and um, spent a lot of time with my um, looking down a microscope and, um, and pinning and organizing and identifying maybe beetles, to be honest. And 
So through forestry, I completed my PhD. Unfortunately, the green movement was pretty strong during that time. And whilst I was working for the conservation biology branch within within the Tasmanian forest, um, within Forestry Tasmania is the formal, was the formal company's name back then, forestry pretty much, a lot of it got shut down. Tasmania is 52% of the state is under reservation. Um, there's a very strong uh, environmental pressure group or groups here and within, within Australia who deem forestry as being bad for the environment. So halfway through my PhD, I got a phone call saying, sorry, but there won't be a job for you when you finish. So that was really sad. Uh, But uh yeah, but it opened up an amazing opportunity. And, um, you know, I'm always the type of person where look at everything sort of half full. And I kept going, kept going with my PhD because it was a good tool anyway for forestry and forestry exists here today and still, and, and um, yeah, it's, it's still happening, but just not to the intensity that it was. So my PhD was, was not worth anything. It was, it still, was still valuable. However, um, towards the end, I was approached by a Tasmanian salmon company, two companies. They had just heard about me through the grapevine. That's often how it works in Tasmania. I have rarely got a job through a job interview. Most um, often I've just um, been sought after a phone call and so on to to get work. So it's kind of nice because I don't know about you guys, but I'm not very good at job interviews and probably stands to reason because I haven't actually had a lot of experience with them. And so a phone call was made to me by Linda Sams, who is head of environment and sustainability for TASSAL. And she said, we've got a problem. Well, she didn't say we've got a problem. She said, we've got a project that is a little tricky and we have been thinking about it for a while and we think we might need to put a consultant or somebody onto it and would you be interested? And I was sure, why not? So um, I ended up coming into the salmon industry. I spent two years on the net cleaner. So this project was looking at, um, they were cleaning nets in situ. So the government wanted to understand the impacts of that to be certain that they were doing the right thing when they were allowing them to be used in the industry. So was that like a chemical treatment or? No, I'll send you a link. They're actually fascinating things. They're literally a vacuum cleaner that is Uh able to hold itself through um, suction, through pressure with a motor on the, on the side of the net and they go up and down and up and down, just, um, so like a pool vacuum, just, just net. it's, it's yeah. a net, it's a net bar. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like the roof, so, but that, for a net. <laughs> yeah. We, we're developing a roof, but not to get off That'll track. Get the which, snow off sorry, your roof. we just did no, that's automatic okay. cleaner. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Off your roof. Yeah. So I spent, um, I spent the first couple of years qualifying and quantifying the biofouling on the net because we wanted to develop some best practice guidelines for net cleaning, for in situ net cleaning, because we no longer lifted the nets out of the water, took them onto the net pad and were hand cleaning them and so forth. It was all being done in the water. And it is essentially like vacuuming your house without a bag, only... Mm-hmm. Thankfully, the, the ocean's a little bit bigger and it sort of, you know, moves everything away. But ultimately, that's, that's what it was. And so they wanted to understand if there were any impacts and the footprint and so forth and the actual um, biofouling species on the net. So I spent the first two years in the salmon industry looking at that and completing that project. And that was fascinating. Again, it was... It, it was invertebrates, but of a different nature. So there was a lot of rhizoans and idarians and things growing on the nets, which was quite interesting. So how, was that, because- how was that transition if you were primarily working with insects and now you're working with some of these, the bivalves and some, I don't know, nudibranchs or whatever you had, yeah, uh, some yeah. of the invertebrates that are in there. What, I mean, was it, oh, this is exciting. I'm no longer pinning insects to a board, but now I'm actually identifying something <laughs> in the ocean. or Or is it... Oh, now I'm in the water all the time, and I'm identifying sponges that don't look like anything. I mean, what what 
what was that transition like for you? It was really interesting because it was a whole new world. And although I'd and and still was and and do at the time, I um, love snorkeling and so forth. A lot of this stuff I really hadn't seen before, and I think the the key there is I I, I don't I think you can pretty much adapt and do research in a multitude of areas as long as you have the skills to be able to to research, you know, to educate yourself or to find others that can educate you. And so I had to learn taxonomy of macroalgae, nidarians, mm-hmm. and all sorts of families that I hadn't, I hadn't sort of dealt with before. And it was, it was really, really fun. And, you know, understanding about nematocysts because these guys were being literally churned up in a, you know, off the net, sucked off the net and then churned up and then emptied out at the other end in, in a pipe. So you know, that was interesting in how perhaps that could impact the salmon and impact the marine environment. Um, so the project to me, even though a lot of people were hesitant at undertaking it and found it difficult, to me it was a fascinating project. But, I mean, to put things into context, the, the crazy part about it was trying to sample because you've got this massive piece of kit, and I'll send you guys a, a, a link to it, it's like a probably 80 centimetres by 1.2 metres. It's a huge piece of oh, wow. machinery that goes onto the net. And the speed to which the water comes out is like crazy. So to get a representative and relevant like sample from that that you can draw any conclusion from was just crazy. And that was the thing that got them stumped for ages. Mm-hmm. But I tapped into my old man's brain because he's an engineer and so I was able to, and that's the thing, right? When you're learning, it's, it's, it's good to be able to tap into other people's brains and to be able to draw knowledge out to help you to solve problems too. Um, yeah. So it was, was very much a team effort. And I got a, a steering committee of a whole bunch of different people in Tassie together to help me. And yeah, so that was a really interesting project. Um, and that was a, a project, a joint project between Hewan aquaculture and Tassau, the two of the largest salmon farmers in Tasmania. Um, but after the first year, Tassau saw my passion, I guess, and they employed me full time. So I was a consultant, but then they employed me full time after the first year of that project. And then I went on to start helping with best aquaculture practices. So developed the um, best practice guidelines for in-situ net cleaning in, in Tassie. And, and then once that project finished, I then started to help them with best aquaculture practices because they were one of the first farms in Australia to become VAP certified. So that how soon um, through that work did it take before you came on board with us? Oh, a long time. It'd be only, it'd be six years, it'd be six or seven years later okay. that I became a part of the GAA family. <laughs> so I, I then spent the next few years with TASSAL. Really what my job became thereafter was implementing responsible farming practices. And I guess a good lead into that was the best practice guidelines for the in-situ net cleaning because mm-hmm. that involved um, responsible farming practices, understanding where to position the pipe and so forth so that it wasn't impacting the pens and looking at the tide and positioning and, and so forth so that the um, wash wasn't wasn't impacting the pens and guidelines on to frequency of cleaning and so forth to avoid high fouling. And so that sort of led into that. And with the, obviously there's some numerous criteria in the, numerous criteria in the BAP standard so it took us some time to prepare and to be able to meet the requirements. And a part of that is developing these systems and these responsible practices. But if you look at it as a systematic approach and then engage the operation staff, you know, so they can take ownership of it because ultimately any of those responsible farming practices that you implement, unless you have the buy-in of the staff, then it just doesn't happen. So it, 
takes a long time and a lot of investment to make changes to your operations to become the AP compliant. So I spent time working with the team on that. And then the supplier also asked for ASC, sorry, the um, retailer also asked for ASC. So after BAP, Tazsal went down the Aquaculture Stewardship Council path for their leases. And I, just before I left, I was writing requests for variants for a number of items in that standard that TASSAL felt that they, um, that they already complied with or didn't, didn't need to do. So, so I started doing that and then I left and I, I, I <laughs> you guys love, so meanwhile, all this time, I still haven't finished my PhD. So I got a full-time permanent job and then trying to finish my PhD. So at the start, I was literally trying to do a postdoc while I had, trying, trying to yeah, undertake a postdoc pretty much, I mean, with oh, the net God. cleaning research whilst I hadn't finished my PhD yet. So I was struggling to finish that and it was coming into year five or something ridiculous. Um, I'd obviously um, cut back on my hours and my PhD and, and that was all good, but it just needed to finish. So I took the time off to finish my PhD before I started a job with Petuna. So Petuna gave me three months before I started with them and that enabled me to finish my PhD. And then my sole role for Petuna, which is the um, third Tas uh, the third Tasmanian salmon farming company in Tasmania. It's the smallest one and they grow ocean trout as well. So Oncorhynchus micas. I think it's called steelhead in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. So, yes. yep. so, so my sole role for them was to get them BAP certified, get them to an audit. And obviously their intention was to get certified. So I spent a year, my first year with them, again, organising and developing and facilitating the systems that they, they needed to meet the BAP requirements for salmon. So, what, what year was that, Belinda? Oh, we can have a look. Steve Hart and I were talking about it not so long ago, or was it Ken Corcoran? I can't remember, but I think it was something like 2012 or 13. Oh, okay. I was going to say, if it was 2015 or after, you were probably working with me to get it certified. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember, you know. It was so long ago. So long ago. I don't remember who I, who I contacted. Oh, you know who I was dealing with? Bill and Betty Moore. Okay, yeah. That was just before me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so, and so, yeah, with Petuna, I, I started in, I think it was November. Then we had the audit, I think it was the following year in September from memory. But I met some of the GAA team, the earlier guys in um, World Aquaculture Society Conference in Adelaide during that time. I was lucky enough for work to send me over to the auditor, auditor's course in Adelaide that was run I'm pretty sure by Jeff Peterson and Lisa Ghosh. Mm -hmm. And I met, and, and so through there, I met Lisa and I met Jeff. And that was just an amazing experience to spend the five days um, as an observer and experiencing this from an auditing point of view, which obviously I was anyway. I was there during the audit. And I guess in a certain way, I acted as an internal auditor for the BAP audit. But... Yeah, it sounds like you were doing consultant work. You were looking at the standards and trying to get the farm or the facility up to, you know, to meet those standards. I was. So I was, it was probably really yeah. helpful to sit in as an observer. Yeah, I was on a 12-month contract with Petuna, which then turned into a permanent position. So after the first year of working for them as a consultant and getting the BAP certified, I then had a full-time position with them as the accreditation officer was my formal role certification and accreditation officer and so I spent um, the next five years with that company running the certification programs and yeah so but getting I guess getting back to that that experience I had at the auditors course I was just I was having lunch with Lisa and I, I showed her, I ran through how I set up and how I, how I prepare for the audits. And so she was really 
excited about <laughs> excited about that, um, which is great. It was good. So I ended up actually getting up during during the course of presenting to the auditors and just showing them and explaining to them from a I guess from a company's point of view how we run the program year on year and how we make sure it's efficient and effective by setting it up in this particular way so that it it, um, it just makes it less resource intensive because the reality of these standards are that it does take time and investment to maintain them year on year and to make sure that you keep getting certified. And the reality of that from an operational perspective is that you don't necessarily recoup the value, the dollar increase of your products so often you're just carrying that cost yes it's true it can open up to, to a more premium market but um, is salmon that's not not generally the case so yeah so that that was um, a great experience to be able to share some of that during that time during that auditors course in Adelaide and I went back with having learned a whole heap from Jeff and Lisa. And then I sort of started thinking about the impacts that we have and and what we're doing in terms of responsible farming practices. And so for me, I mean, I just felt like I really wanted to make a bigger difference. I wanted to make more of an impact than just the company that I was working for. And so you know, I thought over the years that it would be great to be able to do that through working with people, an organisation such as GAA, such as Best Aquaculture Practices. And um, it just, I don't, I don't know exactly how it happened, but Kent Inglis came down to Tassie to um, talk to us. And at the time he was the Australian New Zealand coordinator. Mm-hmm. And so he came down yep. to talk to me and um, we went out for dinner. There was a couple of us from the company that went out for dinner. And then soon after that, I guess he realised, and, and what happened is because people caught wind in Australia that I was helping companies to become BAP certified. So I, the word just got out and I got people contacting me and, and you know, this wasn't paid work. I was just guiding and helping people and spruiking BAP and the benefits of that. And so he... He saw that, and, and I don't know exactly how it all led to it, but he, he basically went back to Chris Chosen and said, you, you know, I've found this person, and they offered me a couple of days a month, and I was, like, so happy. <laughs> it was great. It was fi- you know, finally um, able to start working with you guys and um, to be helping people get certified and to be doing what I'm doing, but to be a part of the organization and to be paid to be doing it. It was great. So that's how it all started, I guess. And then those days just increased over the year, over the past 18 months, because um, I guess I haven't, well, I've been with the organization for, I think it'll be two years this year, or is it three years time? Yeah, almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the days increased until it finally got to a point where Ken Corporan calls me up one day and says, if we offer you some more time, will you leave Petuna? And I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I loved my job, but, but as I said, working, working with you guys, working together, you can just create so much more impact. You, it's just, um, you know, you, you're working at that high level where, where you can um, achieve so much more in terms of, um, driving responsible farming practices in aquaculture. And that's really where I wanted to, to be. So, um, was there an area with your work with, um, these facilities and kind of that consultation work that you were doing? Mm. Was there, were there certain aspects of the standards that really spoke to you? I know that we kind of utilize you as an animal welfare expert. Mm. Was that kind of part of the pillars, uh, that JA focused on that you really, gravitated towards how did you kind of get in that space definitely well i guess i ran the the harvest um audits so i saw an opportunity whilst we were getting HACCP certified in the on the harvest to be able to bring in animal welfare indicators and indicators of stresses and so forth through that HACCP audit. So when we, when I was doing internal auditing several times a year, I would incorporate animal welfare 
um, criterion into that audit. Um, with best aquaculture practices, I was very, I was very keen on and, and made sure that in any operation, operations, operational procedure, um, that animal welfare was taken into consideration. Things like crowding and swimovers and um, grading, the various activities that are done on the farms there that that the staff, you know, knew that they were dealing with sentinel beings because it became very clear to me that, you know, day after day after day, continually handling and seeing these fish and doing these tasks, which they were doing routinely, you just lose that connection with the actual animal. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's very clear to understand that I that we try and anthropomorphize things too much as humans. I know that sounds like a pretty yep. very true comment, but um, these are a production animal, and we have to look at them as so. And we have to look at them as producing them to eat. They are food, but there's definitely certain aspects throughout the production of the animal that need to be addressed. But fundamentally, if your animal husbandry is good and your housekeeping is good, and then that that is in my mind, shown by good fee conversion ratio, you know, growth SGRs and so forth. So, you and know, the quality at, at of the, the end, final product. Exactly. Yeah. Now, so I guess, yes, you could say that certainly the, the fish, the animal welfare component to the standards was great because it enabled me to work with those animal, those animal welfare requirements and, and get them into our day-to-day activities on the farms and, and, and not only on the farm but also the hatchery as well. So I was working with the hatcheries to get them certified too and the hatcheries have a whole host of other activities which also require animal welfare considerations. So it was the farm and, and the hatchery. And the most important thing there, which we did at least once a year, but it was generally twice, was also training. So I developed animal welfare training tools with the vet and we had the guys go through that a couple of times a year to make sure that they understood what their role was in terms of meeting the animal welfare requirements. But ultimately, yeah, ultimately the, the proof is in the, the end product. Um, you know, a good, a good looking fish, good condition and um, high survival rates. It is wrong for us to look at mortality as an indicator of welfare. That's, I feel very strongly about that. And that's been taught to me by my friend and, um, and business partner, Christine Huynh, who is an aquatic veterinarian. She specializes in production fish, so aquaculture as a veterinarian and it's something that I felt feel passionate about, but I guess as a vet, they can articulate it a lot better than us. But yeah, through, through several examples and through, through reading and understanding and listening to fish health experts, we should not use mortality as an indicator. So when we do talk about fee conversion ratios and, and survivability, etc., we still need to be really careful that we're not looking at, at mortality it it's it's more it's so much more it's more about the survival and um and husbandry rather than than yeah using mortality because by the time the fish are dead it's too late mm-hmm. get what i'm saying so mm-hmm. by the time yep. they're actually we need to be um we need to be running very strong fish health surveillance programs on our on our farms on our certified farms to enable them to be able to pick up things um before they escalate into something something bigger and they lose a number of fish so So you've been in this industry now for a while i've only been working for gaa for three and a half years and Mm. didn't have any background in aquaculture Mm. or seafood and every year i'm learning something it's like every day i'm learning something new but one thing that always speaks to me is how much change is happening in this industry all the time with innovative technologies, just all mm-hmm. these creations that are being built to better the industry and disease management. Yeah, from, and yep. stuff like and that. I'm just 
lab yeah. tests. I'm curious what you have seen, if we just focus on the animal welfare piece, what sort of sure. technologies have you seen become available or are being integrated down there, down there? Uh, what was it? Down the... Under, down, under. Under, down, under. <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of changing how people are, are doing aquaculture down there. Vaccine development. <laughs> We're very good oh. at producing vaccines, Rob, for yeah. our salmon very quickly. I mean, that's your ultimate weapon against um, viruses, yes. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just uh, recently, the last few years, saw an es- escalating cases of pilchard orthomyxovirus, of POMV, and um, the companies have successfully worked with the government to create a vaccine which is proving to be quite effective as far as I know. Now I'm sort of on the outside of a lot of this. I, I don't have the privilege of getting the news really fast, but I'm, I'm keen to learn and to understand um, how effective that vaccine is. It went through its first trial, I think, midway through last year. So um, the results will be in this forthcoming production cycle. But vaccine development is um, something that is really, I guess, the most powerful tool to be fighting viruses. Ultimately, it's interesting. Every You sort of track along as a salmon farmer and you think you're going okay and then boom, you know, a few years later there's, there's a virus and then you sort of, you combat that virus and you get that under control or bacterial infection, whatever it might be. And then sort of every few years, there seems to be these viruses that occur in, in salmon. So everybody's really keen to keep on top of and ahead of that. And also, I guess, amoebic gill disease is pretty, is up there too for trying to find a way, particularly in terms of animal welfare you know, the stresses that are involved for the fish, it's the handling. So with amoebic gill disease, they need to bathe them in fresh water. And whilst the fresh water isn't an issue because it's inert, it's just the um, stress of the fish getting them into the liner and so forth and the handling. It'd be great for us to be able to manage amoebic gill disease in such a way that we didn't have to do that. And there's various technologies that are coming Along there, I, I, I believe there will be in terms of now they're getting well boats and bathing through well boats and finding softer, I guess, inverted commas, ways, less, mm. less uh, damaging ways or stressful ways of bathing the fish in fresh water. But well boats is not a new thing to the salmon um, industry worldwide, but it's a new thing for Tasmania. And every every country has its has its welfare stresses in terms of its its species. And I speak specifically to salmon here because it's my, um, it's what I've had the most experience with. But so for instance, in Tasmania, we don't get sea lice. So we have no problems with lice. Whereas if you talk to a Scottish salmon farmer, it's a different story, you know, or yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and it's been great to be able to travel to some of these places and, see firsthand um, how they're managing it through the um, grass and, and, um, and so forth. Now, does that have to do with the water temperature, I'm assuming, for some of these diseases or sea lice, things like that? Yeah, currents, distribution. Yeah, I mean, you could say they just haven't made it here yet, but I better touch wood. <laughs> yeah, t- knock on wood. Because <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I suspect so. I suspect it's just distribution and then the inability to be able to um, expand their distribution, whether it be through currents and through water temperatures. That's an interesting question, actually. Sometimes people ask the most obvious ones and it's not something that I've looked into because we haven't, it hasn't been an issue here, but right. definitely something that I've recently, recently taken up because of t- undertaking the Animal Welfare Project I've been a part of the reviews of the animal welfare section for the finfish and for the, actually, no, not for the finfish, scrap that, um, for the salmon with, with John Forster. I've been working with him and yeah. I've updated or asked him to update the animal welfare section to reflect more specifically on handling of fish and lice and well boats. So I've, I've read quite a bit into how they manage them, but, but the reason why they're not here now you've got me thinking. I'm going to have to go and have a look. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for, for our listeners who don't know, 
uh, Belinda mentioned the Animal Welfare Project, and that's something that uh, is being done. It's a grant-funded project, uh, and what our part is in that is Belinda is helping us develop some content for a course that we're going to be housing on the Academy, and we can link to the Academy. It won't be up yet, but maybe if someone listens to this episode in the future, they can maybe check out that course. And Belinda, you were sending us that the content and some of the findings from that animal welfare research project that's been happening. Um, and it's some really interesting stuff, particularly, you know, the idea of, of fish being, like you were saying before, a, a sentient being and us kind of either anthropomorphizing them or looking at them as, you know, not really remembering that it is a living thing. And I can attest to that when I worked in a zebrafish lab. I mean, I would just go in, oh, my job today is to go and kill 150 fish in this tank and I got to kill 500 fish from this section over here and you just throw them in a big bucket of MS-222 and ice slurry and they're, they're dead immediately and it, it's nothing. You know, it doesn't, you, it's just, it's like picking flowers. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's really an interesting, to me, it, it's a really interesting kind of thought experiment to think about and, and an ethical thought experiment as well when we're talking about these fish being having you know they're they're living things and having personalities you know we've talked about some when we anthropomorphize some fish have personalities we were talking with holly frolic um last week about cow stingrays and how they're like puppies that it's not oh, true that's how but that's how we look at them you know so um why is that different yeah. for some some species of fish and others and and that whole idea was really fascinating to me can you talk about that a little bit and I, I know it wasn't a huge part of the animal welfare project, but um, I find that super interesting. Well, it's more about, um, yeah, you Sorry know, that's throw a, you off a little. But. No, no, that's fine because I'm from, come from such an operational perspective that it's that, that that component to me of welfare is always, is always challenging in the production system to apply. So what, mm-hmm. what, what, we, what we need to recognise and understand as people growing fish and producing fish is that at each stage of our job, we are responsible for ensuring that that fish is, is comfortable because ultimately, whichever way you want to pitch it, they're not in their natural environment. Now, you could argue yeah. that that is excellent because that means they never have to worry about food or predators, which is true. So therefore, arguably, are they less stress likely? But just recently, quite a bit of research has come out and John Forster has been um, sending me quite a few interesting papers on, on how we are changing their behaviour as a production animal so that the salmon that you see in the wild and the salmon that you see in pens, the argument there is that behaviorally they're not the same. And so therefore when we look at sentience, again, we have to also look at it from a wild fish versus a production fish in that they're actually getting, I guess, inverted commas, used to being in the environment within which they are intensively produced. You know, they arguably does the, does the, do the marine cages um, allow them to mimic their, their social grouping and so forth, um, the way they crowd and, and so on, and, and the net pen utilisation and the movement within the pen, does that make them like the schooling normal and so forth, the research suggests yes. So there's some parts to, to farming where the fish do or, or can behave as, as they would in the wild. But the reality is that if, you, if they were to escape, again, research suggests that they have very little ability to be able to feed themselves and have an understanding of what they're supposed to do to survive in the wild, I guess, that then leads on from that if they can't feed themselves adequately. I know I've cut open the stomach of escaped salmon in Tasmania and found pebbles and cigarette butts. So they, they, uh, there's evidence there that, that suggests that right. they aren't but- behaving. In terms of the, in terms of, um, the workers seeing them as sent, sentinel beings that approach really is at each stage of the production and first and foremost which is I guess where I try and lead people to in terms of welfare in a production system 
is they need to understand the the, the stresses to at, at each activity and they need to when when they're working they need to we need to fall back onto which what ties heavily into welfare and i've mentioned before is the husbandry processes so the better we provide them with with the water, with the optimal water quality and and as optimal growing conditions as possible within the constraints of the production system the more comfortable that they will be and so in terms of having a worker understand sentience and understand that that the animal is feeling and sensing and it's and it understands fear and it understands being comfortable versus being uncomfortable it's quite easy to get them to understand that by relating that through their day to day job. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to lead, to lead us, to lead GAA, to lead us to, to the tools and sentience. There's no argument. Now there was a paper that came out in September last year that suggests that the um, pain and reward system processes in the brain for fish is really similar to those of, of humans, if not identical. So I think the argument that can fish feel, it's, it's been over for a long time. And in my mind, yeah. you always are on the side of caution. So for me, they, they always could sense and feel fear and pain. Mm -hmm. but, and that's uh, where, this... where new innovative technologies come in, such as when we spoke with Mike Forbes from yeah. Ace Aquatech, yeah. the um, in-water yeah. electric stunning uh, technology, which is just a yeah. faster technology, a faster stunning process for harvesting fish. So they feel less pain, like instead of putting them, instead of putting fish in an ice slurry, uh, where it's kind of a slower process, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different technologies for things like that to yeah. reduce well, the stress shock. and the pain in fish. Mm. So yeah, Th thermal shock is not considered to be welfare friendly no, no, at no, no. all. However, but it's how it used to be done. Well, so. to be to be fair to to people that utilize thermal shock, it can be done well if it's you know it needs to be done properly. And I guess that means ratio of slurry to fish, understanding exactly that, understanding the um, percentage of salt in the slurry, understanding that there's a thermocline that is created quite quickly in your bin when you're putting a fish in there so that you need to use oxygen and there needs to be mixing and, and so forth. So there are certain ways to which thermal shock can be improved to, to deliver the, the, the welfare requirements that you're looking for. But again, it's about effort and understanding and time and, and, and often a production system, you know, agriculture production system doesn't necessarily have the resources or time to do a lot of research around this. So a good example is the Australian Barramundi Farmers Association. They've been using thermal shock for many, many years quite successfully in terms of its uh, ability to render them insensible and, well, to kill them, but also it doesn't impact quality. Right. And so they've um, engaged with a researcher who's looking into a number of welfare indicators as well as that then that leads on to, to quality. And one of them is actually rendering insensible products slaughter and how do they improve that? And certainly they will be doing, um, I suspect they will be doing in-water electro-stunning trials but if you talk to a barra farmer here in australia they'll tell you that thermal, the thermal shock is quite fine now i've actually audited some farms on the welfare of of barramundi and i can tell you now that um as long as the ratio of ice to the fish is, is appropriate the fish die very quickly and and painlessly but yeah, it's a matter of um, understanding the limits and the balance for that. Um, do, you know if, do you know if tricane is still being used for that as well? If what, sorry? If tricane is still being used for that as well? Or are, you talking that, about, no. are you talking about clove oil? Isoeugenol is the only thing that we use here in Australia. Oh, okay. I know, I know when I was, I just know when I was in college, when we had to, and when I was working um, at the fish lab, we had to either put them to sleep for measuring or, um, you know, where we could bring them back or to kill them, we would overdose with tricane MS-222. And mm. I've heard recently that it's not really being used that much anymore. So I don't know. I don't know if that's I think it's that, a uh, prohibited substance of food producing animals. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, ISO, ISO eugenol is the only thing that's approved for use in Australia. In fact, even in the US, they're not allowed to use it. I'm pretty sure it's banned in most other countries. There's, there's... Well, I think for the aquaculture side, I think we were mostly using it for to basically put them to sleep. You measure them and then you, you put them in fresh water to yeah. clear it out. And then they wake up again, you put them back in. So there wouldn't be those residues in the final product. Cause it's not for slaughter, yeah. but you know, when, when we were using them for research fish, we would use it to knock them out yeah. real quick. We'd over overdose them and, and it would kill them, we, but yeah. it wouldn't have an effect yeah. on the tissue that we're looking at. So, um, I just, you know, no one ever really talks about it. And when I was in college, it seemed like a really big thing that we <laughs> worked with a lot. So I, I was just curious about that. Yeah. Um, so we're going kind of long, Maddie and Justin, do you guys have anything else that you want to ask Linda before we start to wrap it up? Do you still free dive in your free time? Um, I try to, but what is free time? <laughs> yeah. Right. Especially <laughs> when you have to it. wake up at 4.30 to jump on this podcast. I have a farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely get out in the water a few times a year, but not as much as yeah. I would like. But absolutely. Yeah. Nice. But we have a couple of marine reserves close by here. Oh, cool. Um, so even if it's not, yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a snorkel around tinderbox reserve is good enough <laughs> yeah so before we close out i got one more question do you guys under down under do you really have like giant mutant spiders that are crawling all over the place because that is the one thing that's been keeping me from traveling down to australia <laughs> what oh no like we only have one spider we only have one spider that's really bad and that's the sydney funnel web and even then that doesn't really harm anybody like the more oh, it's not about harming it's about it's about looks, size, size and if i can see them <laughs> i i oh, gotta tell you when i came down here city. today before you came on i came into my booth and i had a, a little spider it, you, you would probably laugh at me to me, it was terrifying and huge because I have absolutely crippling arachnophobia. And it took <laughs> everything I had to to smack this thing as hard as I could with a fly swatter because it was just terrifying to me. So literally when people are like, oh, I'd love to go down to Australia. I'm like, I, I don't think I can do it if everything that I see on the internet is true. So I wanted to hear <laughs> no. it from someone who is down there. <laughs> no, not at all. Like you, if you're in the cities particularly, you won't see any spiders really. But oh, that makes me feel We better. don't. And also, too, what might make you feel better is we have so few that are venomous. I mean, most of them are harmless orb weavers that are just really pretty and build webs in your garden and don't do anything. We don't have those big hairy things like in the Amazon basin or anything like that. Yeah. Like <laughs> uh, we have a couple of them, but, but no, they're not. They're not really. All right. Well, that makes me feel better. So. You'll I, still I just, pack your to... beekeeper outfit and sleep in a giant yeah. net, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, bring Probably. your hazmat suit. <laughs> yeah, suit yeah. of armor. All right. Uh, Belinda, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, get out there while we have you on the show? Well, I just, I just think in terms of welfare and where, where we are headed as an organization and our responsibility to always be on top of welfare and, and the technologies and the research and so forth, this project has been really interesting. I took on the project halfway through after Steve Hart um, changed roles and didn't have time to didn't have time to continue. And I was put my hand up very quickly and, and said to the previous CEO that I was keen. So it was good. To, it's good to be able to continue to. It's good to be part of that project now. But what what Steve and and Co had found prior to me taking taking this on really is exactly where I think we should should be headed. So through all the literature review and all the work that had been done up until the point that I became involved indicates that, that the, the key areas we can make the biggest impact is with the training of the staff. So the education tools that we're going to be developing are going to be really important and, and vital to be driving the welfare changes on the farm that us as an organisation believe in. And also the field trials that we are going to undertake, hopefully. COVID has put a halt to those at least until the, the farms can open up to visitors and international visitors. But As it the has field with many other things. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? And so the the field trials looking into rendering the um, animals insensible prior to slaughter will, will be really important and is also another area where we can make the biggest impact, particularly for commercially important species like tilapia and pangasius. And, um, you know, if we can help in that area, it's, it's, it's going to be great and to be able to give the farms really succinct information around dosage and duration within water stunning, it's... 
it's mm-hmm. going to be be great and then to double that with the with the training of the staff too so i think the project is definitely headed in the right way and we as an organization are going to be leading the way in terms of um, improving animal welfare globally so i just wanted to finish on that fantastic well we really appreciate you coming down and joining us from literally probably as far away as you can get from us. Yeah, um, really <laughs> Yeah. So if any of our listeners would like to contact you with questions or anything, are you are you okay with that? We do course, have a lot of listeners yeah, in Australia. We do. Australia <laughs> is our one our third biggest um Listener base, yeah. Downloads. Listener base. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, our, our third largest listener base is in Australia. And uh, you guys are kind of neck and neck for number two with uh, Scotland and the UK. So uh, we wow, have a lot nice. of listeners in Australia. Australia loves podcasts. And uh, <laughs> we love our podcast listeners in Australia. And if you want to contact Belinda, we will put her contact information in the show notes along with some of, some links to some of the animal welfare stuff that she's working on. And eventually when we finish up the animal welfare course in the academy we'll add that link in there as well so thank you guys so much belinda thank you really appreciate you joining us and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much nice to see you nice to talk thanks yeah thanks for waking up early and uh, doing this yeah go get your day started Folks, that was our conversation with Dr. Belinda Yaxley. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And um, we hope you're a little less afraid to go to Australia if you're like me and terrified of (laughs) what eight-legged creatures may be crawling around down there. I do feel a little bit better about that. But obviously, that wasn't the main topic. And I learned a lot more than just that in this conversation. So I'm really excited to hear what's coming in the future with technology in regards to these vaccines that she was talking about for some of the salmon diseases. I thought that was pretty interesting. Definitely. So remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you're listening right now and leave us a rating and review, particularly on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, any place that you can leave a review that really helps us get found and gets our content into more ear holes around the world. If you want to contact Belinda, her contact information is in the show notes. If you want to contact us, Justin, what is it? Follow us on social at Aquademia Pod and don't call our voicemail line because we are not in the office and we won't be able to check it. And I also don't know what the number is off the top of my head. So that made it easy. <laughs> right. But you can email us at podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. That's right. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.